Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and it is episode number eight. And in this episode, we had the pleasure and the privilege to chat with Professor Gregory Shaw. If you don't know who Professor Shaw is, he is a professor of religious studies at Stonehill College in Massachusetts. He's the author of the groundbreaking, in my opinion, uh, Theurgy and the Soul, The Neoplatonism of Iamblichus. And if you haven't read that book, I would highly recommend you check it out. If I were stuck on the proverbial uh, desert island and was only allowed one book, that book would definitely be at the top of the list. So, again, check that out. In addition to that book, Professor Shaw has written a number of articles on the Neoplatonists and on Iamblichus in particular. He's currently working on a manuscript that explores the embodied aspects of later Platonic philosophy and its similarity to the Tantric traditions of South Asia, and we are extremely interested in that and excited to read that when it's finished. Um, Theurgy, it's an embodied Platonism very much at odds with the dualism that has been identified with Platonic philosophy, so it's a little bit of a paradox. But that makes it a pretty interesting topic of conversation and um, study and practice. So we really enjoyed talking to Professor Shaw. He was down to earth, lighthearted, as you'll hear. And um, it was just a a good time. I've definitely felt elevated afterwards. Um, We really hit on some really interesting topics and... um, Well, without any further delay, let's go into the interview. We hope you enjoyed as much as we enjoyed doing it. Okay, welcome to the show. My name is Dominic, and with me is my co-host, as always, Janice. Janice, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Okay, and we are honored today to have a special guest, Mr. Greg Shaw, with us to speak about Neoplatonism and specifically Iamblichus and his theurgy. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks. Thanks for setting it up. Okay, and so if you guys don't mind, let's just head straight into the questions because we have a lot of questions and a lot of stuff we'd like to cover, but who knows, you know, how far we'll get down the list. Um, All right. So, Greg, um, first off, how did you first uh, come across Iamblichus? Because he's not—he's kind of a, an obscure character. Yeah. Well, um, I think I came across him before I knew I was coming across him. Uh, quite a few years ago, I immersed myself in reading uh, Blavatsky um, and her philosophical writings. Specifically, um, she wrote a book called *Isis Unveiled*. And I, um, I remember her saying that the Neoplatonists um, understood the, the divine wisdom that she thought was um, being conveyed in her tradition as well. And I later realized that she had mentioned Iamblichus, but I didn't know that until later, and I went back and looked at it. But so my mind was open to the Neoplatonists being significant. Um, but my real introduction to Iamblichus specifically, and and where I finally got completely hooked 
on him was when I was in graduate school at UC Santa Barbara. I was taking a seminar on uh, Roman religions, and my professor, um, Hecht, uh, asked me to read the uh, On the Mysteries and, and see what I thought of it um, in light of E.R. Dodd's essay on theurgy, which is in the appendix of Greeks and the Irrational. Well, that opened the door for me. I, I, I really connected to what Iamblichus was writing about in On the Mysteries. I had a feel for what he was talking about. And when I read Dodds' essay, I felt like Dodds was missing a lot of what was in On the Mysteries. And it wasn't that Dodds wasn't bright and clear and a good writer, but it was as if he didn't really hear something that was in Iamblichus's um, work. And I felt like I did hear it and I did get a feel for it. And so that's when I started writing about um, Iamblichus and theurgy. Is there something in your background that made you more open to, to Iamblichus, do you think? Uh, just maybe your lifestyle, your interests at the time? Well, I, I had been involved in yoga traditions. Um, uh, for about four years, I, I basically immersed myself in um, uh, pretty serious uh, practice of meditation. Uh, in Astanga yoga, I, I joined a, a group. Um, that came over from India and I meditated a lot. I, I guess I would say that um, I entered into sort of deep states of realization or altered states, however you want to talk about it. So I knew that if you hear a sound over here, it's thundering here where I'm living. Um, I knew there was some really deep reality that was accessible to us, but um, I didn't feel particularly identified with um, the Indian or Hindu approach to this. So uh, I was looking in Western traditions to see if there's something that corresponded to that or was the equivalent to that. And I found some um, material in Plotinus that I resonated with initially and, and was drawn to that. The thing about Plotinus and the thing about the yoga traditions that I was in was that it was very much, um, especially the yoga traditions that I was in, was, was getting away from and apart from the body and anything having to do with bodily desires uh, of any kind. And so it was kind of an asceticism that I was uh, immersed in. And Plotinus fit right into that. Um... So when I discovered Iamblichus, it was about the same time that I was moving out of a, a rigorous ascetic approach to spiritual practice. And um, what Iamblichus showed me was that there's ways to bring the depth into your embodied existence. And he did that in, in, in a way that was a little more convincing, I would say, than what Plotinus provided. Plotinus seemed to suggest a kind of like go within and go up and out of this world. And I, I got that from yoga and I, I was into that. But ultimately, I didn't think that was the way to go. I thought we have to be in the world. And Iamblichus provided a, a kind of a framework for um, bringing that depth um, into the body, into your embodied life. 
So that's, he helped me actually um, come back into my body. I would put it that way. That's cool. And that makes sense that you resonated with him because you were practicing. And as we might touch on later, that's, he was all about um, practice rather than the intellectual. It, it seems as though he was, wasn't so much for the, the prior Platonists and their, their purely intellectual pursuits. And is that, does that sound right? It, well, I would say it sounds almost right to me um, in, in the sense that I think that Plotinus can, can, can be understood as purely intellectual, but it's a kind of um, an intellectuality that, that goes to a very deep, deep level, but it also cuts out the body. And I think the main difference between what I saw in Iamblichus and Plotinus is that Iamblichus embraces the body and thinks that the soul is really down here in this world, in the body. And I just felt that that was a really important um, insight. But Plotinus was deep, but he just took the depth out of the body, if, if, if that makes any sense. Got it. Yep. yep. Um, well, well, wasn't it, was it, was it Porphyry that criticized Plotinus for that? Um, or was it, I think it was Porphyry, right, who said that the reason Plotinus would go, because he'd go through these depressions after his experiences of union, and one of the theurgists criticized him, saying, "Well, if you were if you were practicing theurgy and propitiating the daimons, you wouldn't be experiencing this fallout after right. you ascended." Well, okay. The story there, as I um, as I've read it, is that um, Porphyry was subject to depression, and oh, Porphyry. Um, okay. yeah, it was Porphyry, and that uh, we don't know if Plotinus was subject to that, but there's no evidence that I know of that he was. But uh, Plotinus was a pretty insightful guy, and he told Porphyry, you know, take a vacation, chill out, you know, um, you just need to re relax a bit. Then when Plotinus died, Porphyry pretty much assumed that he would take over the leadership of the Platonic community. But oh. Iamblichus, by that time, who had once been his student, was in Syria, and he was promoting a different kind of Platonism that it was, in a little sense, competing with what Porphyry wanted to teach. And Porphyry mm. then criticizes, uh, not Plotinus, but criticizes Iamblichus for doing these rituals that don't really look like they're Platonist. <laughs> and, and, and he said, you know, the model for how to be a Platonist is what Porphyry was, what Plotinus provided, purely intellectual and that approach. And that what he, you're, you're teaching over there in Syria, Iamblichus, is, is, a little bit like um, superstitious magic and not really up to the level of a platonic school. And so Iamblichus writes back and tells him, no, you, you got to get it right. Um, this, this actually is a much deeper way. And um, I, I imagined or, or proposed in, in my book on Iamblichus that maybe had Porphyry worked on some of those uh, problems that he had that made him depressed. Uh, and he integrated them into his life that he wouldn't have been depressed. But if you're getting up and out of the body, you might be, not be dealing with some of the stuff that's in your life. I'm not saying it's easy, but no. Por Porphyry was prone to depression. Did um, Iamblichus, was he taught theurgy by Porphyry? 
Or where, mm. did he, where did he learn his theurgy? That's a great question. He was introduced to theurgy by Porphyry. Porphyry um, was Iamblichus's teacher, but it's likely that because Iamblichus was Syrian, and because then he made his home in Apamea, which is in Syria, because Apamea is the place where the Chaldean oracles were recorded and written and preserved, probably in a temple uh, there, according to uh, Athanasiadi. Um, my guess is that while he was introduced to theurgy by Porphyry, he, he understood it in a way different, perhaps, than the way Porphyry understood it. Porphyry oh. thought theurgy only cleansed the lower soul, but as soon as you cleanse the lower soul of, of its hang-ups, then you just move into this higher level, and you wouldn't need theurgy at all. You wouldn't need ritual. Um, and Iamblichus didn't see it that way. Um, and one of the reasons is that they had a, a different point of view about where the soul is. Plotinus, and probably Porphyry following him, it's hard to say, Porphyry waffles on this, but Plotinus is very clear that the soul never descends completely into the body. And Iamblichus said the soul descends completely into the body. And if you don't think the soul is really down here in the body, then it's just a matter of kind of letting go of the confusion of thinking you're really here, because you're not. And that's Plot Plotinian, um, Plotinian discipline. Are in the body, you have to deal with what the body has and is engaged in. So it's a very different orientation. Cool. Do, do you know, I mean, this might be a tough question, but okay. um, <laughs> where... Um, Where's the first acknowledgement or reference to theurgy, at least in Neoplatonism? Well, it's in the Chaldean oracles, which were written in probably the middle of the second century, so 150s, 160s. But um, we only have um, fragments of those oracles as they are recollected by later Platonists. So... Um, Iamblichus speaks theurgy throughout. It's in fact, I heard an interesting paper at a conference recently in, in LA um, by a scholar who suggested that maybe Iamblichus uh, really cooked up this whole uh, controversy with Porphyry, that Porphyry really uh, didn't have a gripe against it, but that Iamblichus just sort of invented this whole sort of controversy in order to expound his theurgical view um, the term was around before Iamblichus. It was in the Chaldean Oracles. Um, in fact, the author of the Chaldean Oracles, somebody, a man named Julian, was called Julian the Theurgist. So, and that was in the second century, and Iamblichus wasn't even born until um, the third century. So the term was around before Iamblichus. And... Not only the term, but probably um, one of the best scholars on, on Iamblichus is a Greek a professor named uh, Polymnia Athanasiadi. You can get a hold of anything she's written about Iamblichus. It's as good as you can get. But she suggests that before Iamblichus came on the scene and, and, and was introduced to the Chaldean oracles, 
they were largely um, practices by a priesthood in Apamea, Syria, uh, and it was just a small group, a kind of a, um, uh, a very small circle of people practicing these, these rituals in order to tap into the, the presence of the gods. What Iamblichus did was to take those practices and make sense of them in Platonic and Pythagorean kind of ways. And, and he, he applied the Pythagorean and Platonic metaphysics to those practices and, and created a new kind of uh, worldview or a new kind of religion, if you like, which combined ritual practice of tapping into spiritual presences with Pythagorean and Platonic metaphysics. And he sewed them together. And that's, that what is what really uh, was what later Platonists called theurgy, the theurgy. theurgy. Awesome. Janice, do you have anything before we move on? Well, it makes sense to me because there's a strong presence of Ecate in the Chaldean oracles. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she's, through antiquity, she's directly associated with magical practices. I, I also, and maybe it's just, maybe it's just because of a possible similarity, but I do feel like Egyptian temple practice um, is somewhat similar to, to uh, Neoplatonic theurgy in some ways too, especially as expounded by Iamblichus. But that could just be due to Syria having an established, you know, uh, cultic theurgic practice that was as old as Egypt's. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that Egypt was a source of Iamblichus's ideas, although I don't think that's something that we can rule out. You know, I, I agree with you. And, you know, here's the thing that, that contemporary scholars were kind of hung up on trying to prove things historically, that somebody was influenced by this historical group and therefore it's all explicable according to this sort of practice in this country or place. It's very possible that Iamblichus made some of this stuff up. That is to say, um, he saw what was going on in Egypt. He was aware of it. And, and he'd probably been to Egypt from what we know. And he probably felt a resonance with what they were doing, with what he was familiar with from the Chaldean practices. And he just trusted his own intuition about it and said, yeah, it's in fact, the um, On the Mysteries claims to be written by a, an Egyptian priest, Abamon, which is the pseudonym uh, for Iamblichus. So he, he just sort of, puts on that mask of being an Egyptian uh, magician priest. And, and it's kind of a Chaldean insight into the whole thing, but he, he presents it as Egyptian. And I could say, you could say that was his sort of poetic creativity. And I don't think that they would be hung up by that. You know, he felt that it was kind of an inspired sort of insight into the nature of things. I think that there's a lot of going on in the ancient Egyptian practices that does resonate. So I don't think it's completely outside of um, outside of the cultural reality of, of the Egyptians that when he did this. Go ahead. I, I don't know what else to say about that. And it seemed like a theme too of a lot of the um, prominent Platonists and, uh, and like Pythagoras to kind of look to Egypt as kind of the standard. I mean, that, that seemed to be a theme. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, definitely. Even Plato. It's in Plato as well. The Egyptians were were looked up to as sort of being like um, older and wiser, and that the Egyptian and the Greeks were younger and and less developed than the Egyptians spiritually. So that, you know, it was in the air. And and yes, uh, the tradition was that Pythagoras studied in Egypt and learned um, a lot of mathematics there. So it, it was part of their tradition, and and it wasn't necessarily not uh, not Greek to say that because it's in Plato too. Cool. We, one we, more. Oh, sorry. Go, Janice. One more thing I want I think is relevant there too is that in the Egyptian point of view, as say as say explicated in the Hermetica, yeah, there is this balanced perception of embodiment. You know where where I feel that Iamblichus' per, perspective on the embodied soul is somewhat, is somewhat consistent with the Hermetica's perspective on the embodied soul, via, via say, the Gnostics, who might have been employing a lot of the same procedures and techniques, but definitely had a very negative attitude toward incarnation. So I think there's another thing, is, is his perspective is kind of Egyptian in that balanced uh, point. That's my understanding. Well, you're right on. T- I mean, the Hermetica is uh, the result of a mingling of um, Platonic philosophy with kind of an Egyptian cultural context. Okay. So that what you've got in the Hermetica um, are really Egypto-Hellenic kind of wisdom. And uh, Iamblichus claims in the, on the mysteries that everything he, he's doing is um, following the teachings of Hermes. And um, there's a lot of overlap between the Hermetica and uh, the theurgic Platonism of Iamblichus. I think I agree with you, Mike, that um, there's a kind of a positive view of embodiment in the Hermetica, uh, but there's also strains of of cleansing yourself too. So some people, uh, Garth Fowden, for example, thinks that that ultimately the Hermetica is dualist and wants to get you out of the body. I've explicitly disagreed with that point of view um, and think that that's just a preparation for a more complete um, embodiment of the divine in in a human form, which is the am- well. Um, but you said something else. In, oh, yeah, about the Gnostics? No. Mm-hmm. Usually Gnosticism is identified with radical dualism, that the body's bad, the material world is bad, we want to get up to the Pleroma, some other place. Um, and that's not inaccurate, because that's the way it was uh, written about by a lot of the early Gnostics. But the other side of it is just gaining Gnosis, which is deep spiritual understanding, and not all Gnostics. Uh, most of them in the ancient world were dualists. But then later, some Gnostics were not dualists. Uh, Ficino was right. a kind of Gnostic, and he wasn't a dualist. And I would even say that um, Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, even though he doesn't use the term Gnosis, he was a Gnostic, it, really, and, and he was not um, a dualist. So that um, if you put an emphasis on the the gnosis part itself, the knowing, the deep knowing, then it might not necessarily be dualist. 
But um, well, I really appreciate what you're saying there too. Yeah. You know, when you're dealing with the Iamblichus, when you're dealing with the Gnostics, you're dealing with people who are speaking, and you're using that term, and they're describing things based on direct experiences they've had. That's not, exactly right. You yes. know, they're not intellectually theorizing. And another thing is, I think this radical dualistic perception of Gnostics, not to get off track too much, Go is ahead. also due to an implicit bias on the part of people interpreting their writings, you know, a bias inherited from, you know, the, the official line of the ecclesiastical authorities over so long, and then later a Protestant development of those ideas even further, you know. So I think yeah, that yeah. at least some of the earlier scholarship of Gnosticism is tainted by that bias and wants to see it as this radical, world-hating, dualist heresy to, to almost try and discredit it and take attention away from where That's very well put. And you know, somebody who agrees with you about this is really one of the best contemporary scholars on Gnosticism, April DeConnick. And, oh, yeah. yeah. yeah she's just published a book about uh, how, how to understand Gnosticism, much along the lines that you've just described. And then she tries to find contemporary manifestations of Gnosticism in movies and, and, and different kinds of literature. I've actually recommended that book to, to Janice quite a few times. So <laughs> the Gnostic yeah. New Age, it's really... The Gnostic New Age, it's a really creative book. It is. I enjoyed yeah. it immensely. Yeah. yeah, it's very good. And she, she presents uh, Neo from The Matrix as a Gnostic savior figure. Oh, he absolutely is, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, no. Um, Gnosis is... And Iamblichus uses the term Gnosis in different ways, but one of the positive ways he uses it is that he says that everybody has an innate gnosis of the God, oh. that it's innate, but we have to um, clear away the debris in order to access that innate gnosis. And, and if we get caught up in, in sort of like more shallow forms of knowing, um, then we're not going to penetrate down to that core gnosis, which is the kind you're talking about, I believe. Yeah. It's variational mm -hmm. gnosis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What's next? <laughs> no, I, I I like that, and I think the experiential is is the main word there. Um, between it is. right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Janice, did you have anything? I I have a list, but did you have anything that's coming to mind that you want to run with, or or no? Should I? Just... Uh, I think I summed it up. But my thoughts, yeah, on the Hermetica, on Iamblichus, is are pretty much. Greg already kind of stated the way I see it too, which is, I think when you're looking at the Hermetica, yeah, what, what do they call it in some areas, the, the, the purification that comes in stages, you know? Yeah. So I think yeah. that when you're seeing the negative perception of the body, it's only in the sense of the soul becomes incarnate in the body and then its perceptions are directed outward into the sensory realm. Right. And that, that's, that, becoming entangled through the senses is the negative perception because you do see the opposite sort of powers of the gods and and so you know i think it is about a process of purification and awakening so that the body can become that that temple of the cosmos and it seems like the amblicus is pretty much saying the same thing i mean and i read i read uh, in one translation of his i think it was dylan's he also speaks about how the practice of the theurgic rites is a form of gnosis as well. Uh, well, it, it gnosis in that deeper experiential sense. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I, in, in, in the book I wrote um, on Iamblichus and Theurgy, I, I refer to one of the hermetic um, treatises as an mm. exemplification of a theurgic realization. And um, it's when um, the uh, initiate chants out the names of, um, where is it? Uh, right. It's um, when Hermes uh, tells Tot that he has to complete the decad and to chant out the names of the powers. It's the very chanting out the names of the powers that allows him to embody all those powers through their mm. audible kind of um, resonance. And that's very much like the way that theurgy works too through the enactment of the ritual and the intoning of the sounds to become resonant with those very sounds, which is the divine body. So you become uh, an expression of that divine body. It's a sort of a way of becoming divine, ultimately. But it's in the body, as, as you would say, which is very different from the escape the world, the world is awful. And I think your, your point about the ecclesiastic and and ecclesiastically influenced kind of scholarship on Gnosticism has sort of overemphasized the dualism in order to dismiss them. Yeah. Yes. I think, I think you have a good point there. Cool. That's a, that's a, that's, go Janice. I would say sort of thing I really appreciate. I think that was re really interesting what you just said about the, the intoning of the vowels and the intoning of the, of the um, names, I, I I prefer the vo, 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 vocus magicae rather than the nomina barbara because I don't see them as barbarous names. Because the if you look closely at the the names used in the rites, they actually do have meanings and do have significance. So I, I don't really see them as as barbaric. But anyway, Dominic, what uh, what's the next question? Yeah, it was a good segue because really our our main interest. And I'll, you know, I think I can speak for you, Janice, here is that we are into the more experiential practice. And so can, can you, uh, Greg, talk about the importance and, and the practical um, application of prayer as um, in the Amblichian system and also um, the use of symbols and tokens? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's take it one step at a time. Um, Iamblichus emphasizes the importance of prayer. Um, obviously, prayer for him is not, um, please God, get me, um, you know, uh, a good grade on a test or, you know, help me make a lot of money. That's not at all what he means by prayer. Prayer is a practice in which a person is able to open up and, and in a sense, transform himself or herself into a receptacle of, of the mysterious presence of the divine that's already here, but we're not taking it in because we haven't opened ourselves up. So prayer allows us to open up to that, to that presence. And Iamblichus says that without prayer, no theurgy could work. There is no theurgy without a preparation of the soul, which occurs through prayer. So, um, my, my sense about him is that his, his lifestyle included a kind of practice of prayer um, habitually, and that um, 
prayer was a way of uh, how how does he put it? It it opens up the soul to allow the divine um, kind of eros or hunger for for the gods to be released in us, and then that's what connects us with that innate gnosis, that um, divine body that that can be experienced in our lives. So so prayer is is essential. And, and if somebody has made themselves receptive enough, then when they use a symbol or chant a sound or, or use an object um, to focus on, um, it will work because they've created a receptacle to allow that to um, be powerful in their imagination. If they haven't, on the prayer and, and, and become a receptacle, then it won't work. You know, it, so pr- really prayer is a kind of all important sort of transformative practice that allows the theurgic rituals to really work. That's how I see it. Anyway. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm and, so glad you said that. Yeah, that was really well put. And so we don't really know how the theurgic uh, rites went exactly correct well i don't and um he he, you know he doesn't give a lot of recipes you know for do this do that um if you want recipes you can find them in the greek magical papyri and and those are pretty cool and and some theurgic rites might have been like that but but iamblichus doesn't really give us much specifics um he, he talks about how it works, but he doesn't say what specific uh, things to do. So if you're, you're going to do something, prayer would be a really good thing to do. Uh, yeah, you, you're not going to be able to do any theurgy without prayer. Cool. Well, it's the kenosis when you empty yourself that is a necessary, necessary preparation for the pleurosis where the influx of the divine light and spirit enter into your soul. And prior to the kenosis, there has to be a turning inward of the senses. It's so it's that it's funny because it's that process you were talking about purification, and that's traditional. The purification, then the nulling of the senses and the emptying of the soul, and then hopefully, if everything goes right, that's when the divine presence enters in. Yeah, I think so. And and in terms of our contemporary um, spiritual scene in the United States. When people talk about um, uh, a kind of Buddhist practice of just sort of um, sitting practice, of being aware of, what's, of what you're being attached to and learning how to let go, um, that sort of letting go of attachments is a kind of very much uh, in agreement or, or consistent with the Amblichian notion of prayer. You have to clear the, the space and as you talked about it, the kenosis, you have to create a kind of an empty space, which can be a receptacle. And I think, you know, um, sitting practice, for one thing, I think is, it can kind of give us a hint as to uh, what's involved in prayer. I mean, he says the first step in prayer is to gather yourself. And that means not to be so dispersed, thinking about this, thinking about that, but be self-gathered. And, and then... From that gathering, um, you become connected to sort of a spiritual uh, perception, um, a kind of feeling like you're hooked up. Um, 
and then being hooked up, you, you allow whatever kind of energies come into you from being hooked up, and that leads you to union with those, those uh, streams of energy. And that's how he describes prayer. Um, it's in the, on the mysteries. Uh, it's, it's right in there. He just lays it out. It's a three-part process. Yeah. That's awesome. It's funny you say that too, because I was just I was just listening to uh, Suzuki Roshi's talks on Zen before we started this call. So, yeah, yeah. He well, was, he's he so good. The analogy, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. Oh, he's he's, he he's really really pure and clean on this. Yeah. Yeah. That mindfulness stuff is is I think it's it's hugely important. Yeah. And and it also I think when people hear about what's going on in theurgy and that you bring the divine into your body or you become like the gods or whatever you want to call it. Um, that's so easily misconstrued to be some kind of weird ego trip. Yep. And of course, given a chance, given the way my ego is, I'll try to make it an ego trip. You no, know, because that's the way my, my ego is, you know, make, but, but ideally, um, a kind of uh, awareness practice, you see through the ego's games and it becomes a little less compelling or a little bit less interesting or you get bored with your ego. You know, yep. sort of like, oh, you know, we don't need to do that. But then they can open you up <laughs> to something deeper. And I think that's what it's about. I completely agree. I think you put that really well. Okay, so, great. Now, in terms of the Dominic, you were talking about symbols and tokens. You mean like Sumbola and Sintimata? Yeah, exactly. That's talked about quite a bit. Can you explain those terms? Yeah, yeah well, um, symbols and Synthemata, which the single, uh, singular of Synthemata is a Synthema, literally means a kind of token. And it, even the term was used for uh, describing objects used in the Eleusinian mysteries. They would carry synthemata. Um, these are objects used in religious ritual that sort of carry you imaginatively and ritually into a state of identification with the gods. Um, and, um, and if you're prepared through prayer, to, to be receptive to the power of those symbols and synthema. And I'm using them rather um, comparatively, and I'm not making a profound distinction between the two of them. I think that sometimes symbols, the word symbol is used, sometimes synthemata is used. Um, maybe somebody else can, can really clarify the difference between them, but I don't make much of a distinction. But be able to be prepared to receive what's being revealed in, in those objects is um, important. And they're, they're the things that carry you into resonance with um, the gods, which is the term they used for it, um, invisible currents, um, deeper states of awareness. Um, and, you know, I guess I, now I'm thinking out loud about this. The question I would have for us is, what are the symbols in Synthemata for us today? And um, maybe that's an inappropriate question. It's ahistorical. You know, it's more focused on, well, what does this stuff really mean to us? But I think that 
each of us, in whatever circle we're in or whatever tradition we come from, have symbols and synthemata that are powerful for us and that, have, that can have a profound effect on us. Um, when my pagan friends create altars, you know, where they you know, have images on, on their altars of deities or whatever they might have, gurus or whatever, those images or those objects function like synthemata for them and put them in resonance with something deeper and more real. Um, and I think this is what, what a Catholic does when he or she looks at a crucifix or, or you know, works the rosary beads. It's, it's an object that, that functions as a vehicle to take them to another level of reality. And that's what a synthema is, and that's what a theurgic symbol is. Um, Okay, I just blabbed away about it, but you know that's some of what. That's cool. So, please, so we want you to blab away. Yeah, okay. just keep, keep blabbing. Okay, but uh, so these are these are um, physical objects and symbols and, and images. Yes, with correspondence to the gods. Yes. Now, at one point in your, in your book, because I'm rereading your book, and it's, I'm I'm having trouble getting through it because I just keep going backwards and rereading the chapters that I was reading before. So. But it's, it's been fun. Um, at one point, I think Iamblichus was speaking against idol makers, which, right. I, which I thought was interesting when we come into this topic of, of tokens and symbols. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting um, critique that he makes. And he thinks that the idol makers are really screwed up and, and they tend to misguide us. I think what he's criticizing there is the idea that um, that the object itself has the power, and and mm. instead of the object being a portal to or like a window to something more real, and so that it was the case in the world that the Amblicus lived, where some people would make idols, which then were believed to in themselves physically have this kind of divine power. And I think the emphasis he wants to make is that the only real idol maker, the only real maker of divine synthemata is the demiurge, is the creator of the world. And that nature itself, mm. ultimate body of symbols. Um, and that what we do is we take those elements from nature and we need create our own sort of like objects but those are secondary and derivative compared to the original um, manifestation of the divine that's done in the very act of creation by the demiurge, which is always happening. Um, and it would almost seem that he's arguing against um, the use of objects as synthemata when he criticizes the idol makers. So I think it has to do with the intention of the maker of the idol and the intention of the user of the idol. Could it also be yeah, a case go ahead. of um, what do you think? Could it be a case of a limitation of perception? Because for okay. the theurgist, yeah. say more about that. Yeah, I think that's the right angle. I mean, for the theurgist, the the synthemata. Thanks for correcting the way I, I, I said that, by the way, because I don't know how to pronounce some of these words. But for for the theurgist, the synthemata, it, it seems to me almost like a transmitter that's transmitting and receiving 
constantly the divine presence. So okay, that's it, good. I like that. Yeah. It, it links you to the series, to the divine series, going right. back to the root principle. Yes. Whereas an idol maker, the, the idol is the end in itself. Whereas for the theurgic perspective, the idol is a way to link yourself to the series and participate in, in, participate in the deity. Would you say that's right? Yes, I would say that's right. And, and in the same way that when Iamblichus explains the oracular places, like Delphi and some of the other places, as how is it that, that the God becomes present at Delphi? Is it really in the water? He says, no. It's in what happens to the seer, and that they use the water as a way to open themselves up to the God. So mm. never that the physical thing is what initiates it, which is what you're distinguishing. It's not, it's not the physical thing that's the end, but it's rather can they allow you to hook into the series that takes you right up to the root. And, yeah. and, and, and it's, it's the God that transforms us. It's not water or the tree or the leaf, or whatever it is, that's just the vehicle that helps us open up. Yeah. Could be something else. Uh, right. right, and it's not, like you said, Delphi, There's, it's not the geographical location either. No, but I, I mean, part of me tends to think, oh, come on, man, it's got to be something about the geographical location. <laughs> Some places are just a lot more evocative than others. Right. But, but strictly speaking, it's not the physical place. It's what happens to the individual. And that determines whether it's um, the urgent or not. Yeah. Well, and perhaps in the physical location, there's a form of um, imminent emergence of the characteristics of the deity that facilitate a resonance that allows for the God to move through that area more easily. I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah. You know? And even if Iamblichus uh, would have said, no, that's not true, uh, I would want to push him on it and say, well, come on, what do you think? I mean, there must be some places. And, you know, uh, you know, that's the other thing about this tradition is it's not a set of dogmas that are, are taken as formulas that you just have to accept. They were working theurgists, theurgists who are trying to sort of like, like musicians that are trying to create a riff that puts people into a deep state. And there's probably different ways to play the music depending on who the crowd is and, and, and you know, what, what the situation is. So I don't see it as a, a rigid and fixed thing. That's rather horrific of you. Yes, thanks. <laughs> but, you know, that's, they, 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 were, they loved that whole aspect of it. Yeah, Proclus is very much interested in the Orphic um, aspect, more than the Amplicus. The Amplicus doesn't say much about Orpheus, but, but Proclus does a lot, and some of the later ones do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, music's pretty amazing as a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And Pythagorean, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. What Amblichus does say is that you can't, you, from your perspective of being an inventive guy uh, with your ego, uh, you're not in position to change the traditional ritual. But once, once you, he also then says that once you're hooked up to this current, the daimon, will show you what to do to worship the God, which then opens the door to a kind of creativity in the process. So on the mm. one hand, it's fixed. On the other hand, it's open because the daimon will show you what to do. 
Fascinating. Can you talk about the diamonds, Greg, and, and what exactly they are? Okay. At this point, I hear my, the, in the back of my head, I hear myself saying to myself, uh, you don't, you don't know shit about the diamond. <laughs> um, you know, um, I, I've read about diamonds. Um, I know what Iamblica says about diamonds, but there's a part of me that feels a little humble about pontificating about the diamonds. Well, what does he say? What does the emblem yeah, say? I'll tell you what he says. <laughs> well, for one thing, like Plato, he says that everybody has a daimon, that when we come into this world, um, our daimon is our guide that determines um, what our impulses are to fulfill our destiny. And that's determined by our daimon. And that when you're really doing what you're born to do, your daimon is pleased and you're being daimonic. And, and in that sense, I think we all can get a feel for that. And um, James Hillman wrote a book called the, the Soul's Code. And he talks about the daimon in this way, that everybody's born to do something. Everybody has a seed in us that wants to grow in a certain way. And the Greeks and Iamblichus and all the Platonists called that your daimon. The daimon determines your destiny. The daimon is your destiny. So that's daimon as a guide. But there's another use of the term daimon that the Amblichus uses as well. Daimons um, work with the gods to unfold the um, to unfold the physical expression that, that comes into the world ultimately from the demiurge and through the gods. And the daimons are kind of like the um, the uh, subcontractors that that build it all up. They, as Iamblica says, they exteriorize what's in the mind of of the creator. They they bring it into a physical form. So, insofar as the daimons, those daimons influence us, they they draw us out into the world. They make us attached to certain things in the world because that's the way things come into existence. So we build up a world around ourselves under this daimonic impulse. Um, we get a house, we get you know possessions, and and we create a world just like a plant grows under its daimonic impulse to to create the leaves and things like that. So daimons unfold reality, but insofar as they unfold reality, they get the soul sort of tied up with reality. We can get caught up. And under sort of under the weight of this unfolding, and we get immersed in it too much, and that's why we have to learn how to work with the daimons, um, and to become how would I say free from that lockstep, almost unconscious unfolding, and sort of to see through it at some point. And maybe that happens to us when we get to a certain age. We say, "Oh, okay, I don't always have to be first in line. Oh, I don't have to, you know, take a bigger plate of food." Or I don't have to make more money than. That's sort of like that blind daimonic impulse to grow, to develop, to expand. It's necessary. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. But how do we learn how to limit the daimon? That's, that's I think, the work um, that Iamblichus tries to uh, encourage. But So he sees the daimons in this second sense, not as guide of the soul, but as builders of the universe, as sort of like, playing through us 
um, our instincts and that we have to learn how to honor those instincts and not try to completely reject them. Because if we try to reject them, that, that would be, in my opinion, sort of exemplified by, say, somebody like uh, Porphyry, who might want to reject his impulses in the world. But then the result of that is you can get depressed. You cut off the instinctual energies in us. Then it usually has some sort of unfortunate result. Um, I would say that, um, and I, I, this is my own kind of bias on this, but I think that all of our impulses in life, whether they're towards eating or sexuality or whatever, these are driven by the daimons. And um, you don't just say no to them. You have to learn to work with them. Uh, that's, that's something that you know, I've thought about. That's cool. And it reminds me of what you, you had quoted Hans Louis in your book talking about Hecate or Hecate and mm-hmm. how she will, she's the queen of the diamonds yes. uh, and how she will meet you where you are. So exactly. if, you're, if you're a bad person, then that's going to be uh, emphasized in your life. If you're a good person, you're going to reap the rewards of being a good person in that way. Yep. Yep. And um, you can't skip any steps. You know, uh, you can't just uh, jump out of your body and all of your impulses. You have to honor them. And so um, our relationship to Hecate and to, and to the material world over which she, she rules sort of lets you know where your soul is. Right. Um, and, and just as you put it, um, you know where you're at. And that's but, almost, that, that sounds very Buddhist too, to just kind of embrace your flaws and, and kind of, and, and your suffering, then you can grow. Yeah, I think that the passage that you're thinking of where I was trying to make sense of, um, and I quoted from Louis, um, Hans Louis, uh, he says, Hecate encounters the souls in forms always adequate to their internal condition. Right. The sunk in the body, she was a necessity, like you feel like you're burdened by fate. For those people who are erring, she's demonic temptation. For the renegade, she's a curse. And for those who have recalled their divine nature, she's a guide. For those who have returned home to their core and they're hooked up to the series, she's grace. Right. I love that. Yeah. She's a mirror of the embodied soul in your state, Um, which I think is a pretty cool idea. I think uh, Hans Luvi, um, that was a beautiful sentence that he wrote. Well, that has has parallels to the uh, Anima Mundi, which... Ekiti in that tradition, I think, is an embodiment of. And in the, in the Gnostic uh, tradition, you have Sophia, and it really seems to be different articulations of the same essential pre- power. Oh, I, see, I see the parallel, too. Yeah, Ekiti is associated with the Anima Mundi, and Sophia was in the Gnostic tradition. Some of them uh, was, was sort of associated with a sort of a, a mother of the world um, kind of um, role. Now let me ask you this: yeah. Isn't with the with the diamonds? What you're saying makes sense to me because, in order to experience ascent, you have to hit the point where the full full incarnation occurs, where the full descent through the process of the the full daimonic descent has to occur before the 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 point where the process reverses happens, and then the ascent begins. So you really do have to actually embrace the daimonic component of reality, become fully incarnate, at least according to the 
neoplatonic theurgic perspective, before then the wheel changes and you start going the opposite direction upward through the heroic series. Right. Okay. Now, what you're talking about is really a paradoxical part of the tradition, and it's not that easy um, to even talk about it. But but I, I know what you're talking about from because you did just talk about it. Um, it, and here's where the hero and the daimon is not really opposed. They appear to be opposed. But um, the hero takes us up, the daimon brings things down. But if you really, um, in order to really ascend, you, you realize that what's happening at the principle of things, one itself and the demiurge, it's constantly flowing out and down. So in really, really, in order to ascend, you have to learn how to descend with the daimons in a divine way. And so that even though it looks like you're going down, that's how you stay up. But if you come down in a daimonic, in a really divine way, that is what, what, what allows you to stay elevated. So to stay elevated, you have to come down in a divine way because that's what the divinity does. It's pure generosity flowing out and creating the world. So if you're resisting the world, then you're not in that flow. And oh, so wow, it's, it's learning how to stay in that flow that, that comes out into the world, um, but it also keeps you at an elevated place, but not a place where you're removed from the world because the very nature of it is to flow into the world. So it's an activity that, that um, fills the whole sphere you could say. And that's what the, um, so the hero, the hero is somebody who knows how to do that. Um, say the heroic soul is to enter into that elevated state where he or she is unfolding or, or flowing out with the daimon in the divine way. So there's no fight against the daimon in that sense. I mean, the daimon is, is, is in a way, the daimons reveal your body. Your, your bigger body, um, if you want to put it mm. that Now, would the, the helmsman or the, the charioteer be the equivalent on the opposite end as yeah. the daimon? Well, yeah, the, the helmsman of the charioteer, like the one of the soul, is, is the place in yourself that um, is, is kind of this, um, so I think that the, the the problem sometimes that I've found for myself is, is that if I start to reify um, those, those states or those principles, like the helmsman, as if I could get to that place where he's above everything, when in fact um, that very principle unfolds into everything. So the helmsman is a kind of divine activity that, that's there in the soul that that is not lost in the daimonic level or it's not subject to or or um ruled over by the daimons but um somehow learns to be in the world but but not ruled by the world um and if you try to escape from the world then you're actually reacting to in a daimonically um limiting way and that causes you to be trapped so fighting, it's dualistic. Yeah, it's dualistic. Fighting against the body, absolutely. 
And, and by embracing the body, you can become liberated from the body in, in that sense. It's tantric too. I actually am writing a, a manuscript comparing theurgy to tantra. It's a non-practice. Oh, yeah. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, well, it is for me. I just have to get the thing done. Uh, <laughs> about halfway through. Um, well, you know, I always thought that the Wheel of Fortune of the Tarot yeah. depicts the process we're discussing really well. Because you have the descending being on one side of the wheel, the ascending on the other, but it's still one wheel. That's right. And it, yes, that's right. And, and if you get stuck on, on, on just being ascending, then you're not in the circle. And it's kind of about becoming the whole wheel, that's in my right. opinion. I think because you're right. Because the wheel is also the mind and the way the mind turns. And the turning of our own psyche is the turning of the soul by the pneumatic winds, which on a macrocosmic sense is the spinning of the world soul with the descent of incarnating souls and the ascent of excarnating souls. Yeah. It, you know, that's my understanding yeah. of it. No, and I, I think that the image of the circle and, and the non-dual sort of understanding of what the Neoplatonists were, were really getting at is, is hard for us because our default way of looking at things spiritually is kind of dualistic. I mean, we're still trapped in a kind of dualism a lot of the time. And one of my, um, when I was a yogi and trying to, you know, get into my, you know, higher self and stuff, I was kind of trapped in a sort of a dualism and wanted to get away from the body, wanted to get away from sexuality, you know, being removed from the world. And, that still influences us. It still influences the way we even interpret the Neoplatonic stuff. We put so much uh, emphasis on the ascent of the soul as if there's something bad about the world, when in fact they thought the world was a theophany. It was a, a showing of the divine. There's nothing bad about our world for the Neoplatonists. Um, and there's nothing bad about being born. And we don't need to be forgiven for being born. There was no fall in that sense. It's just um, an unfolding and learning how to be here. Um, it's not a guilt thing. like, But a lot of us grow up with that, and it's hard mm -hmm. to grow out of that, that habit. Would you, agree that, would you agree that there is a fall, so to speak, in the Iamblichian e e theurgy, in that if you get too bogged down with uh, too many layers, and you weren't able to ascend, could that be considered a fall? Well, in a sense, it can be considered a fall just by being in the body. You're, if, if you're completely identified with the body and, and, and you haven't tapped into these deeper levels and you haven't even tasted at all this innate gnosis or, or uh, the helmsman of the soul, the one of the soul, uh, that's to be in a fallen state, yeah. I think the metaphor of being fallen then is appropriate to describe that soul. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. It's, it's a fallen state. Um, but it's not fallen in the same way that, say, the Christian soul feels like he or she has fallen uh, by having committed some sort of or, or participating in some sort of guilt uh, of an event that was done a long time ago. It's not that kind of fall. It's more, it's more perhaps comparable to the notion of Buddhist samsara. You know, you're fallen because you're not living in a balanced and virtuous way. 
and you're you're grasping on too much to certain things or you're or you're running away too much to certain things so your soul is imbalanced um so in that sense you're fallen but that's a lack of virtue yeah and it reminds me and janice maybe you can you can correct me or quote correctly but um, the gospel of thomas where jesus is saying that you must disrobe and and stand on your clothes and be like children it kind of reminds me of that idea yeah and i also think it's not about like being a like greg is saying not being it's not about we're we're not accursed we're not condemned we're just unconscious and 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 in the unconsciousness of our true nature as 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 rooted in the divine i think i think that that's the the issue is the fallen when when we hear the term fallen i think it refers more to fallen into unconsciousness fallen yes into i think that's oblivion. it oblivion right right that's the real fall um there's a wonderful book about um the two aspects of our psyche and 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 in different religious traditions called um the divine double by charles stang oh. and oh, yeah. I, that's my find to be very um interesting uh book where he reflects on this notion that every soul has a divine double and you see Mm -hmm. it in some of the uh gospel of thomas and gnostic documents that there's some sort of divine presence in us yeah in the god the divine twin you see it in 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 mani the prophet that he had this divine twin um you see it in plotinus where he talks about his you know, higher being, higher self. And there's even a sense in which that's reflected in some of the Amblichian stuff too, but he does a, kind of a different approach to it. But um, it's, it's a very creative book. You, you should check it out. Our divine. I will for sure. Yeah. That yeah. sounds amazing. And I it think, is, did, did you do a, did you do something with the Harvard divinity school? Did you talk about that? Yeah, book? I did. Okay. I did. I was, I was invited to talk about it. And then I, I did a review for it. Um, I think it was Bryn Mawr, uh, review of books. And I wrote, I wrote a review of the book. I think, I think it's a really creative book. Yeah, it looks really interesting. Do you think there's any um, connection to the Jungian uh, shadow self or the unconscious with this divine twin idea? Look, I think Jung, it, among our contemporary thinkers and, and um, prophets, you could say, Jung is one of the most important people that's lived in our time. And I totally think agree. He does a lot to bring um, to bring us into touch what's been hidden from us. And sure, working with the shadow, which is working with the stuff that that mm, keeps us unconscious, is absolutely necessary. Um, and uh, then coming in th- into contact with archetypal energies, which um, in the ancient world they would call them the gods or daimons or spirits. Don't call them archetypes, but his red book, for example, is a record of his contact with what the theurgists would call gods and daimons, and how mm-hmm. to negotiate his relationship with these beings. Um, and I think that he's he's a kind of modern day theurgist, in my opinion. Completely uh, agree. Carl. I think that when people, when I feel like when people criticize Jung, either a they don't. They haven't really studied him or read him, and they're talking about ideas they've acquired secondhand of his. Yes. Or B, they're deliberately dissimulating, kind of like critic, 
like I was saying about the Christian criticism of Gnosticism right, in right. order to further their own agenda. Because if you sit and read Jung and you have any experience with the numinous or the archetypal, you realize, wow, he, he did something amazing here. He managed to create almost a whole discipline of relating to the interior realm and, and get it legitimized scientifically. It was a remarkable thing he did. Yeah, he gets it. Um, he was so concerned to try to legitimize it scientifically that sometimes hard to unpack what he was really doing. <laughs> because he uses all these, you know, scientific terms and, and it kind of makes it look like it's objective knowledge. But this, his inf- emphasis on the empirical engagement with this stuff is what we call experiential. And, and he, he did it. He went through it. Um, I think the biggest problem that we have as we approach people like Jung or the theurgists or the Neoplatonists is that we, we sometimes try to pretend like we understand it all and can explain it all conceptually and that, and that somehow, and this is a real academic disease, um, I can say, that my fellow academics have, and I have too sometimes, is that in order to really get this stuff, you have to go through a Socratic process of not knowing. You have to go through a kind of aporia, as it's, the term is, where you don't know, that, that you feel lost, um, and that you go through this kind of emptiness and kenosis that you talked about earlier. And it's only when, when, when you're stripped of what you think you know that you can kind of op- be, tap into something deeper. And then it's, you're on your own, the struggle. Um, and then you try to make sense of it. Um, and you try to speak from that place and it's, it's not always easy. And if you try to speak from that place and you try to speak to academics, it can also be very difficult. Um, one of the people that I worked with and, and he's a colleague and a friend is Peter Kingsley. And, mm. um, he's found it, um, well, he doesn't even try to talk to the academics. He just speaks from his own authority in a sort of prophetic voice, and he really pisses people off. Say, like, who, the, who the hell are you to, to speak in this sort of authoritative way? But um, he's good at it. I think that the real test is whether somebody's able to speak in a way that touches us and moves us. And if they do, then you say there's something true about what that dude or that woman is saying. Um, I think Kingsley, I know that a lot of my colleagues just don't like him because he seems to uh, seem inflated in, in his sort of sort of prophetic voice, but I think it speaks truth. And so I respect it and respect him. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he wrote a book called The Dark Places of Wisdom where he's trying oh. to make sense of, uh, Parmenides uh, as, as a kind of a shaman who goes into an underworld. And he actually has a, a bone to pick with Plato. He thinks that, that Plato over-intellectualized things. And, that, well. and, and he, I, I understand why he says that. Right. Um, he likes the Amblichus because the Amblichus is getting us back to more of this experiential dimension and, and, you know, and less intellectualized. Um, but uh, it's not always easy to talk about these things. I think Jung did it. I have the greatest respect for Jung. Jung was a kind of magician. 
Yep, and, that's and that's our perspective too. Yeah. The best sense of, of the term. Actually, Kingsley just wrote a book called Catapulk about, and it's the subtitle is Carl Jung and the End of Humanity. Wow. Uh, it's just a great title. Um, you might check it out. If you look at his website, Peter Kingsley, he, uh, he advertises the book and you can kind of see what, what it's about. Uh, that's great. I would recommend your checking. Yeah. I will for sure. Yeah, that's, yeah. it's fascinating. I, I, every time I can read the same thing by Jung repeatedly over the years and keep to mining it from wit for insight and wisdom and even direction in my own spiritual practice. I mean, it, Jung is like Blavatsky, it's like Blavatsky too. People who criticize them don't really read them. They don't really, you know, because these are, you're talking about, you, you're talking about people who, who have this profound experiential perception of things that they spent their entire life trying to, trying to aggregate a language to express this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh there's one thing I wanted to say be, before we end talking, and that is that for about eight or nine years, I, I was in a group, and now I'm in another group, that did work with dreams and, and images from dreams. And it was sort of an application of what Jung calls the active imagination, which is where you go back into a dream and you let the dream dream itself onwards through your imaginative participation in it. And I've done this with with in groups for years. And what I realized since I've been working on Iam with the Amblicus is that the same way that we were engaging these dream images was the way that the theurgists would engage these presences and entities in their work. Because to the degree that the image has autonomy and you let it define what you're experiencing, it, it helps open you up, it helps cleanse you. And most of, most of the stuff that you encounter in dream work is um, daimonic in the sense that you have work to do and you see where you're still <laughs> caught in, in certain sort of deeply um, erotic patterns and certain sort of like guardedness that keeps you closed down. But um, if you really open up to the images, uh, it liberates you from them by honoring and working with them. And I found that there was a lot of parallels between um, the dream work that we were doing experientially and what I was reading about in Iamblichian theurgy. And I actually wrote a paper on that once. And you, yeah, you yeah. I, I read that paper recently, and I think you talked about the gods speaking to you through the images. If That's were, right, right. Which is an interesting, interesting perspective. Yeah, I was borrowing a little bit from the way James Hillman talks about the God speaking through images, like um, even through the image of a refrigerator in your home. You know, I mean, um, the way that the gods appear to us now is going to be different from the way they appeared back in the ancient world. Um, I think Jung even says that the way the gods now reveal themselves to us is in our stomach problems and things like that. Um, <laughs> We're living in a different culture. We've sort of pushed the gods and then pushed out of our consciousness yeah. so they come into us in ways that are unconscious largely or through our dreams. And was it that the refrigerator yeah. was was Saturn? I think I remember that. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Cool and congealing. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Um, yeah. 
And it, I think it's a very creative way to, and it's not always going to be Saturn, you know, because the refrigerator in some, in somebody else's dream might not be freezing you, but it might hold, allow fruit to be moist and fresh. Mm -hmm. um, and and mm. so in that case, the, the, the refrigerator would be more akin to perhaps Aphrodite or right, right. some sort of sensuous kind of presence. So that's why, you know, there's no like hard and fast rule about how to approach dream images, but you have to listen to the image to find out how it's affecting you. Uh, well, I found that work to be really, really creative and helpful. Um, and I thought that there were parallels to um, uh, Iambrachian theurgy as well. Right, because Alan, his thing was that you had to quiet the intellectual side and kind of embrace the, the unconscious. Yes. That was the sense I got from what you were writing. Yes, I think that's what it is, yeah. You have to become receptive and not try to overinterpret it mentally, but allow yourself to experience the images in an embodied way. Right, as a receptacle. That's right, as a receptacle. Mm -hmm. well, well, what do you think about Henry Corbin's use of the term imaginal to kind of de define what you're describing as, as a, because, you know, like, uh, imagination almost has this negative connotation in, in Western culture of this right. fabricated fantasy. And, yeah. and Corbin, I think he tried to use that term imaginal to describe those interior experiences right. as valid. And that's exactly the way that I think that, um, well, uh, that's how I use them in, in the dream work. It's imaginal experiences. Now, the thing is, how does the imagination then become imaginal? And um, as a rule of thumb, I would say when the image takes on an autonomy, when it seems to have a life of its own, then you're in a different space. It's not your imagination anymore. It's like, oh, what is this? <laughs> and, and that's where you're in an imaginal space, uh, when there's an autonomy to the images. At least that's my rule of thumb distinction. Do you have any advice yeah. or tricks or, uh, you know, uh, ways to, to, you know, that point when you transition, when you're going from imagination or yeah. active visualization and then boom, it clicks and starts moving. Yeah. Like, how do you get there? How do you make that transition? I personally? think we, we've been talking about it the whole time is that you become yeah. firstly receptive. Firstly, you, you know, you quiet down how, you collect yourself, you, you put yourself into an open state. And then, and then um, when your mind comes in and starts to say, oh, that means this, or that means that, you just say, shut up. Let, let it speak to me in its own language, which is as an image. And um, I think uh, James Hillman, I think Jung, Corbin, they, they all have a kind of a mantra is follow the image. You know, the image should, should lead you, not your thoughts about the image. Let the image speak in its own imagistic way, in an imaginal way, using Corbin's language. And it will. Um, and I suspect that we're a lot more influenced by the imaginal than we realize, but we're just not conscious of it. Um, and, but as far as Jung goes, hats off to Jung. I think he was a giant and uh, powerful, deep soul. And <clears throat> this book by Kingsley, I think he's really trying to um, celebrate 
the, the, the authenticity and depth of Jung and how important he was for us. That's awesome. Yeah, Dominic, is there anything else you want to add or ask? No, you know, I, I, I hate to end this, honestly, but Greg, I'm sure you I have know. things to do. Um, and I do have to get back to work, actually. Yeah, no, no, it's great. We had a good conversation, but I think uh, if we tried to push it much further, we'd start to go downhill. Uh, yeah, well, okay. We've hit the please, peak. Please, yep. like, accept our gratitude for coming on here and talking to us and opening up and sharing. We're so humbled and honored that you agreed to talk with us and we're yeah. really excited yeah dude it. i feel the same way look i'm i'm, I'm in the same skin uh as you so we're all together <laughs> in this it felt like we were just kind of hanging out in a living room just talking about these things as friends and that's that's the best kind of conversation to have good i enjoyed it thanks for setting it up and good luck to you and i look forward to seeing the link have okay. a great night greg take care thank you, thank you so much all right, all right take care bye-bye Okay, there it was. What a great conversation. I know I have a lot to review and think about more deeply. Some of the big takeaways for me were the emphasis on prayer and how important that is to the theurgic life and meditation. And these are things that we can definitely access. So um, that's something, something we can do right now. Everything else, well, let's, we'll see. I want to say thanks again to Greg. Definitely check out his papers and articles that he's written. You can see those at academia.edu. That's where I find them. And you can just type his name in there. Also, of course, check out his book, if you haven't already, Theurgy and the Soul. As far as us, there's Facebook. Give us a like. See what we're doing there. And that's usually the best place to to get in touch with us as well. You can find us also on YouTube, so subscribe there. And finally, finally, we are on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play. So we have been calling ourselves a podcast this whole time. And finally, we actually are a podcast. So check us out there and give us, you know, a rating I believe that helps um, get us out there a little bit better. And really, that's the goal. We want to highlight these interesting topics and bring some illumination to to as many people as possible. So we have a lot of cool stuff coming up in the future. We've got a lot of guests lined up for the next few months, if not year. So stay tuned for that. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you in the next episode.